Hello, Skywatchers. Thanks for listening to the Royal Observatory's Look Up podcast. I'm Patricia. And I'm Bryony. And we're going to highlight what to look for in the sky in October in this Cosmic Diary. We'd like to give a special mention and our thanks to Jada Allen, one of our work experience students this summer, who helped put the astronomical highlights in this Cosmic Diary together for us. When looking at faint objects such as stars, nebulae, the Milky Way and other galaxies, it is important to allow your eyes to adapt to the dark so that you can achieve better night vision. Allow about 15 minutes for your eyes to become sensitive in the dark and remember not to look at your mobile phone or any other bright device when stargazing. If you're using a star app on your phone, then switch on the red night vision mode. October marks the beginning of meteor season, with the final three months of the year bringing us a whopping six separate meteor showers. First up, we'll have the Draconids, observable from the early evening of October 7th until the 11th. This is a great meteor shower for families, as it is typically best seen in the evening, unlike most which peak in the wee hours of the morning, which is not exactly school or work friendly. Even luckier, this year the Draconids almost coincide with a new moon, meaning the skies will be nice and dark for some evening meteor viewing. As with all meteor showers, the Draconids get their name from the location of their radiant, the constellation of Draco the Dragon, near its two eyes of Altanen and Rastaban. In addition to being one of the few constellations where the stick art actually resembles the thing itself, Draco has many deep sky delights in the folds of its tail, including the spectacular NGC 6543, better known as the Cat's Eye Nebula, and the spiral galaxies NGC 5907 and NGC 5879. It's worth noting though that the meteors could appear from anywhere in the night sky, so we suggest going along with a friend and perhaps playing a game. The first one to spot a meteor shouts meteor and we'll leave the prize up to you. But where do these meteors come from? Well, almost all meteor showers occur as the Earth passes through the debris left behind by comets as they make their way around the Sun. Some of this debris will then fall through the Earth's atmosphere, heating up and glowing as it does. This debris doesn't even need to be large. Specks as small as a grain of sand can produce spectacular streaks across the sky. It turns out that the Earth will pass through two different comet trails this month, giving us two separate meteor showers. First up, we have the Draconids, which we've already talked about. These will come from the debris of Comet 21P slash Giacobini Zinner, but the second shower has an altogether more famous originator, Halley's Comet. Later on in October, we will have the Orionids meteor shower from this famous comet, and we expect them to peak around the 21st, 22nd of October. The radiant for this shower lies in the constellation of Orion. You will have to stay up a little later for this one, as the constellation will not even rise until almost 11pm, so the peak of the shower won't be until well after midnight. With around 20 meteors per hour expected, there will be plenty of meteors shooting through the sky, but do be warned that the almost full moon may wash any of them out. But for your best chance, see if you can take a look just before dawn and you might get lucky. Another observation to look forward to is the second brightest natural object in the night sky after the moon. You guessed it, it's good old planet Venus. 
Fun fact, it was named after the Roman goddess of love and beauty due to its mesmerizing illumination in the night sky. Throughout the years, many different cultures have studied its motion, from ancient Greek astronomers realizing that the morning star and evening star were actually one object that was visible at different times, to Islamic scientists calculating and refining its motion, to Galileo Galilei recording its apparent phases to support the heliocentric model of the solar system. Late in October, Venus will start to become visible in the western part of the evening sky just after sunset. With the thick clouds of its atmosphere reflecting over two-thirds of the sunlight hitting its surface, it's no surprise Venus was thought to be a star. However, if you were to take a peek at it through a telescope, you would see it appearing as a definite disk rather than as a point of light like the stars do. If you look up at the eastern sky at nightfall, right at the very beginning of the month, you might be lucky to spot the closest large galaxy to our own Milky Way, Messier Object 31, the Andromeda Galaxy. It's a spiral galaxy of maybe as many as a trillion stars, that is a mind-blowing two and a half million light-years distant from our home. Though it is easier to see with binoculars, you may be able to spot it with unaided eyes as a faint misty patch a short distance away from the band of the Milky Way, just above the famous asterism, the Great Square of Pegasus. Although you won't be able to make out any of the individual stars within it, with binoculars, the characteristic oval appearance of the galaxy should be visible. An interesting fact is that this was first labelled in the star charts under the name of Little Cloud, based on the earliest recorded description of the galaxy, made by a Persian astronomer in 964 AD, Abd al-Rahman al-Sufi. See if you can spot that little cloud in the night sky this month. For those of you who are enjoying a view of the sky from the southern hemisphere, look towards the east in the early twilight hours at the beginning of the month to spot the star Sirius, located in the constellation Canis Major. Some of you might recall the name Sirius from the Harry Potter series, but in this case we're talking about the brightest star in the night sky. Despite its bright appearance, it isn't even close to being the largest star in the constellation, being surrounded by hypergiants, including one of the largest stars ever discovered, V.Y. Canis Majoris. There are also a number of open clusters, including Caroline's cluster NGC 2360, named after Caroline Herschel, the first woman in England to receive a salary as a scientist. If nebulae are more your style, see if you can spot NGC 2359, also known as Thor's helmet because of its distinctive shape. This object is a beautiful emission nebula over 10,000 light years away. If you take any photos of the night sky, please do tweet them to us at ROG Astronomers. You may also want to check out our Night Sky Highlights blog on our website, rmg.co.uk. But now, it's time for our cosmic news. Hello everyone, and welcome to the cosmic news part of our podcast. Every month, Bryony and I will pick a story that's sort of appeared uh, in publications or perhaps on websites within that month. It's a story about astronomy or space exploration, something that's sort of gathered our interest, really. And we pick that story, and of course, we talk to you about it. But more importantly than that, we engage in our epic Twitter battle. And, you know, we get you to vote on your favorite story for that month. And 
I mean, it has turned into a battle, hasn't it, Bryony? It, it, it really has. I mean, as much as I very much enjoy choosing stories, you know, a little part of my brain is also thinking, can I come up with a catchy title for this one? What can I, what can I figure yeah. out? Um, I've yet to come up with any good puns for titles, but I'm sure that will help. I'm sure I'll figure something out. Well, speaking of the Twitter battle, I am mm. sure you're wondering how things went in the previous month, Brian. I am. I am. Actually, but before we do that, I think we should probably celebrate first. Uh, oh, that is true. That is true. Um, yeah, for the first time in a while, we are recording in person i know normally uh, it'll be us sitting well me on my bedroom floor patricia sometimes on her bedroom floor as well recording the podcast via zoom but now we're actually on site at the observatory in real life patricia's a real person she has legs it's I, well if anyone's ever wondered briny has legs too um wow. it's just because we've only ever seen sort of the top half really of each yeah. other for the last 18 months it's really something to get used to, but it, it is exciting though. It is, it is lovely, um, but it's not enough to take me away from the excitement of this moment. I've been, yes. I've been on a bit of a winning streak. You have, you have. And so the question is, has the winning streak continued? Well, I have the results in my hand. So just to remind everyone, in our previous podcast, uh, you spoke about a puzzling solar paradox that had apparently been solved. And I spoke about NASA's tribute to Gene Roddenberry, creator of Star Trek, and the message they broadcast to planet Vulcan. So I can confirm with 54% of the votes, it was a very tight one this month, Bryony, the winning story is message to Vulcan. I mean, I can't begrudge you that because quite frankly, if I allowed myself to vote, I might have had to vote for that one as well because it's it's a message to Vulcan. The fact that the fact that we can even say, "Oh yeah, we're sending a message to Vulcan." You know, I mean, sure, it's not maybe the real It's not the real Vulcan, but you know, it's it's still exciting. We yeah. still have that. We still can say it's, you know, the planet Vulcan. And that that's exciting enough, I think. So well done, Patricia. Well deserved. Well deserved indeed. Well, that means we have to get into the business of this month's story. So Bryony, what have you chosen for us for this one? Now, I have actually stayed in the realms of stars. Uh, however, not stars like our sun is at the moment. Really, uh, really, it's a, it's a peek into the future of what our sun might be. Oh, very interesting. Uh, today, uh, I'm going to be talking about white dwarf stars and the fact that there are, well, there's been some recent observations of white dwarf stars in open clusters, specifically the open clusters of M3 and M13, suggesting that, well, our current model of white dwarfs might not actually be 100% correct. Oh, so I think we better back up a bit, first of all, and let's just go through what a white dwarf star yeah. is. So a white dwarf star is what is left over once a star about the size of our sun, up to even possibly as large as eight times the mass of our sun, when it finishes uh, fusing its hydrogen. So a recap on the way that stars work. Basically, stars are these incredibly massive balls of gas that are incredibly hot at the center. About Our sun's about 15 million Kelvin. Um, and if, if the center of an object 
is over 13 million Kelvin, then it will be able to undergo hydrogen fusion, that is, fuse hydrogen atoms into helium atoms. And so that's the point that we say that it is a star. So you can see 13 million Kelvin compared to our 15 million Kelvin, our sun's actually quite on the small side. Technically, yeah. it's a technically it's a yellow dwarf star. So it really is quite small. Yeah. Um, we do, however, believe that about 98% of stars fall into the category that will eventually evolve to be a white dwarf star, which is what I'm going to talk about. So basically, for most of its life, stars like our sun, um, up to eight times the mass of our sun, will just be fusing hydrogen to helium, and they'll just keep doing that, and they'll just do that for most of the 10 billion years. Now, to understand white dwarf stars and really red giant stars as set before a white dwarf star, we need to talk a little bit more about what's going on then. So as hydrogen is being fused into helium, at the very center of the star, there is going to be this buildup of helium. I've, I've seen it referred to as the helium ashes. The ash, yeah. Yeah, which I really enjoy. So you end up, as the star ages, at the very center, you have a lot more helium, which is a lot more dense than hydrogen which means that actually the core of the star will get a little bit more dense over time, get a little bit hotter then, a bit more pressure, and therefore actually over time, ever so slightly, very gradually, um, the star's rate of fusion will actually increase. So actually we think that our sun's rate of fusion has increased by about 30% since it was first born, which is quite interesting. Now the reason why this is important is that for a star about the size of our sun, we think that after around 10 billion years, the helium ashes build up in the very center will start to cause a bit of a problem. You see, it's not just temperature and pressure that is required for hydrogen fusion. You also need to overcome the electrostatic repulsion that will exist between hydrogen atoms. So really, when we're talking about fusion. We're talking not so much about atoms, but about nuclei. So that's the nucleuses of the atoms. So for a hydrogen atom, it's literally just a proton. Now, protons are positive, which means that if we want to fuse them together, well, they're going to be repelling each other, Yeah. which is a bit of an issue, which is why you need really, really incredibly high densities of hydrogen. If you don't have enough hydrogen in there, basically to pack it so tightly that the hydrogens are forced to fuse, then it won't happen. And so what happens, so basically once you have so much helium ash, you know, after 10 billion years of fusing hydrogen into helium, our sun will just basically, there just won't quite be enough hydrogen compared to the amount of helium that's yeah. there. So we won't have this constant fusion process going. Now, this constant fusion process, as well as generating a lot of light, it actually is also really key to keeping the sun the size that it is. Because, you see, gravity just wants to pull everything in and down and down. The only thing that's stopping it are other forces. So when you are pushing down on something, that thing is pushing back against you. Yeah. You can break something if you push hard enough. Yeah. Um, so with the sun, with a star, well, what's stopping it actually is these fusion processes. The fact that it is as hydrogen is being fused, it releases all this energy, which is pushing outwards. And so that becomes this sort of push and pull, tug of war against yeah. gravity, which is pulling inwards, and radiation pressure from the fusion that's pu pushing outwards. But if this radiation pressure drops, fusion rate decreases, then gravity will start to win. And so it will be pulled in really tight, which means that the core will start to get hotter and denser. 
which means that a little bit of fusion can happen again. Yeah. And so you end up with actually this quite erratic rate of fusion as it starts to shrink down. You'll, you'll kind of get these sort of waves of, like, of fusion. As it keeps on compressing, the outer layers, conversely, will actually start to kind of blow away from the star because of these erratic bursts of fusion, at least like higher rates of fusion than others at times, the outer layers start to puff up and blow off. And this is when it becomes a red giant star. Yeah. That's what that is when it's nice and blown up. And it's interesting because the center is getting hotter, but the outer part's actually getting cooler and turning red. That's why it looks red. Now, eventually there's going to be so much helium ash in the center that things are going to get so incredibly hot for a very short period of time. And I say short period of time, I really do mean short. We're like talking a few minutes here. Which, okay, just to put it in context, because it's a running joke in astronomy, because often when we talk about a short period of time, for that's that can be something like hundreds of millions of years, and we're like, oh, that's a blink of an eye. But when you're saying short in this case, you really are meaning it's short. I really mean incredibly short. This thing called a helium flash can occur. Basically, the core will get so incredibly hot, about 100 million Kelvin, compared to its 15 million Kelvin right now, that it will be able to fuse helium very briefly. We're talking for a few minutes. And in that, it will, will, it will fuse a whole bunch of helium really, really quickly, kind of blow off these outer layers. And what's left at the center will be the fused remains of this helium ash, which will be mostly carbon and oxygen. Yeah. Then over tens of thousands of years, which is, again, quite a you know, short time, sort of settles down, everything blows off, and you'll be left with the core of the star, mostly carbon now, and it's our white dwarf star. Yeah. Because, as we say, for our sun, or stars like our sun, they cannot fuse beyond that point. They're not no. massive enough, whereas stars that go boom, which we might hear about a bit later. Ooh, <laughs> spoilers! Um, those have to be really massive stars. Exactly, exactly. And in fact... Something quite interesting is keeping white dwarfs up. It's not actually radiation pressure or anything. It's actually this thing called electron degeneracy pressure. So basically, a white dwarf star is so incredibly dense that if it were to shrink down any more, then the electrons would literally have to jump into the nucleus. Literally, the atoms would have to be ripped apart for the white dwarf to get any smaller. Which is... um. Small, shall we say? Yeah. It's pretty small. It's pretty small. Um, yeah, so that's what a white dwarf star is. Just this incredibly dense material that is not undergoing fusion. It is propped up by this electron degeneracy pressure. The electrons don't want to get in the nucleus. But it's not fusing anything. It's just radiating away. You know, energy that was created at the very core it takes time to reach the outer layers. And it just slowly cools down. Now, because we've sort of historically always believed that the way white dwarf stars work is they just radiate away their energy and it dissipates. Yeah. Exactly. And so it's a really great way of knowing how old something is. However, this paper that came out in Nature Astronomy recently may put a little bit of an issue into that. Oh dear. Just a tiny one. To be fair, it's not impacting all white dwarf stars. Okay. Just certain white dwarf stars. So... Some researchers from Italy, actually also from the UK and Argentina, have actually been studying two particular quite well-known open clusters called M13 and M3. 
They both contain quite a few white dwarfs, but there are some notable differences. Notably that M13 is a little bit more blue um, in their, the, uh, their asymptotic giant branch. They see a lot more blue than they see in, um, in M3. So they, they had a bit of a closer look at it, looked at some spectroscopic data, you know, color magnitude diagrams, and they then kind of realized that actually it seems there's still some hydrogen fusion going on in these super bright white dwarfs. Okay. Which seems is, strange. It does. Because we said, we thought that white dwarfs... They're basically the dying embers. It's they're effectively game over for the star, and this is just... Exactly. So, yeah. so models have always suggested that there could be, we're talking like 10 to the minus 4 to 10 to the minus 7 times a stellar mass, which is, for reference, about, what, 0. 0.0001 to 0.01% of the star's mass. Um, it was possible that that much could still be undergoing hydrogen fusion. That's apparently the, the models have always suggested that's possible. However, this is such a negligible amount that it wasn't thought this would actually affect the star's yeah. brightness. However, they've realized that actually it might. And the reason for that is quite complicated, and I'm not going to go into a full explanation of why, but it's essentially because of this kind of iterative process that we were talking about before, about how you end up with this core of helium ashes, this hydrogen burning shell, and then your sort of outer layers. Yeah. It's the fact that during this process, you end up with several convection currents going on. So, so this dredging up. It's dredging up material, yeah. Exactly, exactly right. And there is um, this particular one that occurs in stars that are more like the mass of our sun, uh, the third dredge up. Uh, basically, when that occurs, when stars are large enough for this to occur and old enough for this to occur, it seems that then they don't have this hydrogen burning shell. However, the stars that are below about 0.56 of the mass of our sun, so about 56% of the mass of our sun, it seems that they haven't undergone this, and so their core basically hasn't mixed in enough right. in their like in the depth. So when they were undergoing this kind of strange like fusion a little bit, shrinking down, fusing a bit more, shrinking down, fusing a bit more, a bit faster, and this quite erratic fusion process, they didn't undergo it properly almost. So when they finally had their helium flash, there's actually still quite a lot of stuff hanging around the core okay. that didn't get blown off yeah. in the helium flash. And so it was managed to hang on. And so because of that, because there is this still this very thin shell, I think that actually rather than being oh, somewhere in the like 0.001 to point uh, to 0.1, it's actually probably around the 0.1 Okay. category, which is starting, you know, if it's always going to be 0.1% for stars below a certain weight, it's starting to get a little bit more significant. Uh, yeah. Particularly when we're talking about white dwarf stars, which have such incredibly long lifespans. Yeah. So we're talking about potentially uh, having our sort of aging data out by several millions of years. Almost up to, yeah. up to almost a billion. Wow. Which is quite a lot. That's, that's quite that's a quite, lot. That's quite a lot yeah. to be out by. And it's all because this thing that we just sort of went, well, that's negligible. Turns out it's... It's not, not negligible yeah. in certain, in certain cases. cases. Yeah. Because they found, you see, so in, in M13, they found a lot more of these smaller stars. Uh, and they found a lot more of these, the, you know, these very bright white dwarfs. But in M3, they didn't. 
So M3 seems to just follow the same old model of white dwarf evolution that we're used to. It's these these very, very bright ones in M13 that are the key. But, well, bright stars are kind of what you like when you're trying to age or date something. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so this could potentially be a problem, but it's also kind of exciting. This tells us about there could be maybe some more capacity for active fusion to occur for much longer than we thought, which has also definite implications for the metallicity uh, and just the abundance of different That's elements. That's exactly what I was thinking about, yeah. Yeah, you know, if, if it's possible for there to be more hydrogen fusion occurring later down the line, even if it's as a consequence of less earlier on, that still has implications on the abundance of elements in the galaxy, which is something that's quite interesting. In, in the paper, they say definitely this is a, an area for follow-up. We can't fully explain the yeah. differences between M3 and M13. We can't fully say why this looks like this and why this looks like that. But it seems to indicate it's because of these very small stars still undergoing some hydrogen fusion. And they say you can't teach an old dog new I tricks. I was just kidding. I mean, that is, that's amazing. I, I, I can see some textbooks being frantically rewritten. I mean, when the helium flash was enough to frantically rewrite some textbooks. Yeah. I mean. <laughs> so, so maybe the chapter on white dwarfs is going to expand just a little bit more now. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's, well, it was a really great story, Bryony. I, I find it quite interesting that your story and my story are both involving the deaths of stars this month. So, I mean, were we both feeling really existential when we I chose? Do, I don't know. Um, everyone brace yourself. I've left the solar system behind again. Once uh, more, my goodness, Patricia, who are you? <laughs> I don't know, Brian. But yeah, so my story this month actually focuses on an interesting supernova event. And this particular story was actually published at the beginning of uh, September. So a group of scientists from the California Institute of Technology, also known as Caltech, think that they have seen a brand new kind of supernova that had been predicted by theorists, but never before confirmed. Ooh, all right. Okay, tell me more about this supernova. What type is it? Because I mean, we've got, what, type 1A, type 1B, type 1 whatever. Exactly. What is this? So um, I, I don't think it's been given an official uh, type yet. So you're quite right. There, so when we talk about supernova, there, there are two types of supernova. But the one I think that most people, when you mention the word supernova, the one that comes to mind are, of course, type 2 supernovae. So when you have a star, like we said, that's far more massive than the sun, so you're looking at around 8 solar masses or higher, so effectively 8 times the mass of our sun or higher, uh, you get a supernova when they reach the end of life, and this is that. that's a spectacular one that people think about. So effectively, when these behemoths run out of fuel to burn in their cores, or more correctly, Once they've hit that stage where they've started to form iron in the core, then it's pretty much game over. And because you've already touched on it really beautifully about that balance between, you know, gravity wanting to pull that star in on itself, and you've got that pressure emanating out from the core. Of course, if you've no longer got that coming up, what happens? Star begins to collapse in on itself because gravity wins on that, you know, that battle that's been uh, going on. So all these layers come crushing down and everything collapses. The core collapses, these layers come crashing down and the, the star sort of just gets 
violently blown apart. I always say that it basically implodes and explodes at the same time. It does. It, there's brilliant demonstrations of this involving uh, bouncing ball. So uh, if you if you want to have a look at this on YouTube, there are great demonstrations of basically what actually happens in, in a supernova. Because you, you think it's a blowy apart thing, but there's a lot more to that. It's more collapsing in a rebound, which effectively rips the star apart. Um, but yeah, great video demonstrations on YouTube. So I, I highly recommend that. But basically, so much energy gets released in a supernova explosion that a single supernova can outshine an entire galaxy. So one star blowing up can outshine the entire galaxy it's in. That's amazing. And it just gives you an idea of the amount of energy that you can get from this. We are overdue a good one. We are well overdue a good supernova in our Milky Way galaxy. So uh, advice, just keep a lookout. But when you have a supernova event like that, you, you can, you think, okay, the star is gone. There is nothing there. It's not necessarily, necessarily true because things can get left behind. So when we're talking about things being left behind, we, of course, talk about neutron stars or black holes. Ooh. So what is different about this brand new supernova that's been observed? Well, it's actually suspected to have been caused by either a neutron star or black hole that spiraled into the core of its companion star. Oh, that's, so it's a bit more similar to a, a Type 1a supernova then. In a sense, yes. Yeah. So it might well become a hybrid-y kind of thing. I don't know. So again, watch the space. We'll, we'll see what comes from that. So, so your mind is probably going, how did people figure this out? Well, it all started when the scientists were actually looking at images that were obtained from the VLAs, which is the Very Large Array. Um, it does radio observations, and it was conducting a sky survey. So this particular data set is actually called, uh, I like to call it VLAS, but I'm pretty sure it's probably the VLASS or something like that. And these particular observations were actually obtained between 2017 and 2018. And what the researchers did, and this is what you always do with sky surveys, is once you've got images of a patch of the sky, it's always a good idea to compare those to images obtained previously, especially if they're separated years apart, because uh -huh. that is how you can pick up if things have changed. Because our universe is not static, it's, it's always changing. And so they looked at the previous survey data, and that previous data had been obtained between, I think, 1994 and 2005. And when they did the comparison, they found a bright radio source that appeared in the new data set, but did not appear in the previous data set. So already you go, okay, something's happened here. Cool. So follow-up observations of this object, which was called VT1210 plus 4956. Catchy. Uh, these were, the follow-up observations were made using both the VLAs, so they use a very large array again, but they also used the Keck telescopes in Hawaii. And the scientists actually determined that this radio emission was coming from the outskirts, I like that word, the outskirts <laughs> of a dwarf star-forming galaxy located just under 500 million light-years from Earth. So, Bryony, I've not only left the solar system behind, I've left the galaxy behind for this you've, story. You've almost left the local supercluster behind. <laughs> <laughs> almost, almost, yeah. When they discovered this, the, the source, when they traced it uh, you know, to this particular galaxy, one of the scientists in the group said, you know what might be a good idea? 
let's cross-reference some other catalogs. Now, that's always a good thing to do. But in particular, this uh, scientist recommended looking at a catalog that listed X-ray events. Ooh. And again, particular short-lived X-ray events. So they did that. And by going through that particular catalog, they actually discovered a source of x-rays originating from the exact same spot in the sky, but at a different time. Oof. These x-rays were not detected in 2017. They were actually detected in 2014 by an instrument called MAXI on the International Space Station. Aww. So through careful analysis, the scientists actually established that the X-rays and the radio waves were likely coming from the exact same event, even though it was it, you know, they picked up the X-rays and radio waves at a different time. So what happened? Okay. Well, when we look up at stars in the night sky, when you look by eye, it's very tempting to think that each star is a single star. Because that's what it looks like with the eye. But grab a pair of binoculars or a telescope, and you'll very quickly realize that stars often come with companions. Mm -hmm. So you may have a binary star system, so you have two stars, or you could have a trinary star system, so three stars, and so on. So you can actually grow that whatever that single star may have appeared on this night sky, it's actually, there's a lot more companions to it. Now, when you've got two stars that are gravitationally bound to each other, so this is a key, is you can have two stars that look close on the night sky, but they may not be a true binary star system. But through observation, there might well be a system of two stars, and they actually are gravitationally bound to each other, and we'll call them a binary star system. So how would you determine the nature of a system like that? Well, one example, and it's an area that I used to work in, is if you have two stars that are gravitationally bound, they're orbiting around a common center of mass, and they end up eclipsing each other. Ah, eclipsing binaries. Eclipsing binaries. And so you, if you just study the light that you get from it, you'll see dips in brightness because you have, even though your mind is going, but there are two sources of light, one is potentially brighter than the other. So you can pick up these dips in uh, brightness. So... This particular star that underwent this brand new type of supernova was actually a member of a binary star system. So what happened? So let's rewind the clock all the way back. And we can imagine two main sequence stars orbiting a common center of mass. So by main sequence, as you touched on, we're talking about hydrogen fusion in the core. Now... If you've got one star that's much more massive than the other, what it means is the really massive star is going to burn through its fuel a lot quicker because with stars, the bigger the star is, the more massive it is, the shorter its lifespan. So live fast, die young. So what happened was, is the far more massive star evolved faster, burned through its fuel, and when it reached the end of its life, it went supernova. But it didn't adversely affect the other star. I love that. Just, you know, it's like that, that meme where the dog's like, everything's fine. Yeah. That was that star. That was literally that. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's fine. My companion just blew up. I'm fine. Is, is effectively what happened. But 
when that star went supernova, it left behind either a black hole or a neutron star. But you've now got this remnant of the supernova explosion still orbiting with its companion, sort of engaged in this cosmic, I like to call it a little stellar dance. You know, you've got yeah. these two objects uh, orbiting each other. But over time, the neutron star black hole started to strip material away from its companion. Now, to understand why that happened, it's because when that companion started to reach its end of its life, it would have also become like a supergiant star, so it becomes bigger. And now all of a sudden, you've got this companion that's stripping material away. So you've got this neutron star black hole, it's stripping material. But what it's doing is it's pulling the material of the star and ejecting it out into space. But what it does is that it doesn't just sort of throw it out. Uh, the way they've modeled it is that that material ended up forming a, a donut shape of material that actually ended up surrounding this pair. And this process of stripping that material away actually caused the two objects to start spiraling so closer in. and closer until eventually you reach game over because this black hole neutron star eventually reached the core of the companion star and it disrupted the nuclear fusion process that's happening because that's i mean if funny that you know if you're a little core you're busy fusing along the last thing you need is a is a neutron star or black hole just to sort of come in and... i mean anyone who's ever watched any star trek has heard you know they'll be flying near someone and they'll say oh my goodness there's a local like local graviton emissions are disrupting the star <laughs> precisely so now, without this wonderful outward pressure preventing that star from collapsing, the entire star was like, game over. Goodbye. And astronomers actually think what happened is that as that material started to collapse in, it briefly formed a disk of material around that neutron star or black hole. And what it then did was it actually propelled a jet of material outward from this disc and it basically drilled its way through the star <laughs> so i mean it's the end of that sorry i really feel bad for it um, first of all get hit by that neutron star black hole and then you it's just drilled apart by this jet of material and that jet would produce a burst of x-rays the same burst that was detected in 2017 so shortly after this jet basically drills its way through the star explodes and the material that once made that star is then flung out into space. And then guess what? That material would be traveling out and eventually slams into that torus of material. And when you've got that happening, you end up producing shock waves and shock waves produce radio waves. And that is the radio waves that were detected in 2017. So, by piecing this all together, scientists think they figured out how that particular supernova happened, how they could link those two events, what appeared to perhaps be two separate events, to the same events that happened. And it's really impressive. And I think, would not be surprised, as we've got a lot more telescopes coming online, we've got like the a lot of survey telescopes that we're coming online it would not surprise me if we start to see 
more events like this where we're looking at events that have picked up in previous sky surveys perhaps random extra events that have never been solved and now you can start to do these large scale surveys so uh, it's it's a really fascinating read and it's just amazing how many ways stars can die now i think it's really fascinating how well, particularly the interplay of all these different yeah. things which of course that's what you worked on with eclipsing binaries i think that's yeah. really exciting just how these small nudges come from these massive things end yeah. up in these with these really interesting yeah branches. and also considering that i think that i'm probably going to get this number wrong because i'm sure it's probably been revised but I think at one stage it was estimated that about 50% of the stars in the night sky are actually not single stars. And so if we're looking at potential events like this happening in the future, I'm sure there are going to be many, many more. And um, it's, yeah, it's a really interesting read. So uh, if you if you enjoyed this, do have a look. The story is out on the internet. But there we have it, our two stories for this month. And of course, please do keep an eye on our Twitter account because the poll will go live at the beginning of the month so uh, please do vote for your favorite story and also if there's anything you've read about that you might be curious about and you want us to talk about then please let us know you can tweet us at rog astronomers but with that i think it's time to end the podcast I think so. a stellar disruption destruction special i think yeah what a way to start october hey mm-hmm.